What's up, hardcore humans? This is Dr. Mike with another episode of the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Okay, you want hardcore? How about thrash metal legend Scott Ian of Anthrax to mark and celebrate the 30th anniversary of Anthrax album Persistence of Time? Now, at Hardcore Humanism, we get our inspiration by talking with outside-the-box thinkers who look societal norms in the eye and say, hey, if it doesn't fit me, I'm not buying what you're selling. I know who I am, I know what I'm about, and I'm pursuing my purpose in life. But the hardcore part of hardcore humanism, the secret sauce, if you will, is that intense work ethic, that determination and commitment to build the world we want. That's how we ultimately change our life and connect with the people who will support us in our dreams. I remember interviewing Scott and his wife Pearl a day a couple of years back when they formed their band Motor Sister. And what they talked about was the effort it takes to make a marriage work when you have two people who are touring musicians. And what I was blown away by was listening to Scott talk about his work ethic. Scott forged a life in metal through the strength of his own will. He knew what he wanted from a young age, never stopped working, never stopped grinding, even after he became heavy metal royalty. And Anthrax, of course, went on to join Metallica, Slayer, and Megadeth as one of the elite and legendary big four thrash metal bands, and the rest is history. So let's hear what Scott has to say. All right, we are here, the Hardcore Humanism Podcast, with Scott Ian of Anthrax. Scott, thanks so much for being on. Yeah, man, thanks for having me. You and I had spoke a few years back for a Psychology Today article on couples' interactions with you and and your wife, Pearl Day, and you had said something that was really so striking to me at the time. It was just part of the conversation, but you had said how you had worked three jobs in order to pay for studio time when you were starting out. And so with the 30th anniversary of the persistence of time, we want to really talk about the work and the effort and the persistence, if you will, that went into your career. And so, you know, why don't we just start right from the beginning of when did you notice that hard work became part of your ethos? (laughs) You know, it's weird because I think back on it, like I could remember my bedroom in my mom's apartment in Queens, very like it was yesterday. My brother and I, we had a normal size room, but for privacy, my mom like had a wall built. So we would each have our own bedroom, which basically I was living in, I think what's the, I don't know the average size of a prison cell, but (laughs) it was, it was small. At least I had the windows. My brother got the closet. I had the windows and I just, I remember from probably from a So that would have been when I was 13-ish, 12, 13. I think that's when I made the connection of I need to work. I need to make money because I got to get the hell out of this room. I mean, this is as soon as I can get out of here, I need to. And the only way to do that is by having my own money because my parents didn't have money to give me to do anything like that. I think my focus very quickly narrowed down to how do I make that happen? How do I get out of here by the time I'm done with high school, let's say, and whether or not I go to college, but how do I get out of here? Then the bigger plan was how do I get into Manhattan? Because as a kid growing up in Queens, the city 
that was like the dream. But I figured step by step, first, how do I get out of here? Second, how do I get to Manhattan? Along with this was all, of course, based in the idea of me making it as a musician as well. So I kind of honed my focus down to just that, like somehow by playing guitar, I'm going to make money to get myself out of this room. And it didn't matter really what I had to do to make that happen. That's why when I told you, I mean, I was constantly looking for jobs and having jobs and then looking for jobs that paid more money or worked two or three jobs and shoveling driveways in the winter time and just doing whatever I could to put money in my pocket. Most of the time, though, when I would start making money, I would spend it on gear, which of course was taking away from the being able to move out fund. But I figured, all right, I'm only in 10th grade. I still got some, I can't move out now anyway. You know what I mean? You know, obviously it all worked out because I, I did get out soon after getting out of high school. Well, no, not really. I took I graduated in 81 and I moved out in 86. So that's how long it took for me to afford my own apartment in, in Forest Hills. <laughs> now, for a lot of people now, the distinction between Manhattan, Queens, Brooklyn is different than it was back then. Like things are much more decentralized, like especially yeah. with hardcore and, and thrash metal and people going around and creating different scenes. But what was that feeling back then of being in Queens and looking into Manhattan? Yeah, the city was, that was the chalice. You know what I mean? It was the Ark of the Covenant. It was everything. It's where, it's where everything was happening. In my mind anyway, certainly for the music business, that's where everything was happening. All the magazines I read were showing pictures and articles about shows that were happening, whether it was the downtown scene at CBGB's and Great Gildersleeves in the late 70s and early 80s, or just going to concerts at Madison Square Garden and Radio City and places like that. The city, that was like, it was a big deal when even before my parents split up and we'd go into the city to have dinner and maybe go to a show or you'd go to the city to go the museum or this, like going to the city was a special occasion. And then we'd be in Manhattan and walking around and I'd, I'd think, imagine living here. Could you, like, we have to get in the car and schlep and it's this whole big thing and then you get here and it's great and then you got to leave and go home to not as cool place. And I like in my brain, it was always, could you imagine living I'm in Manhattan? I remember saying to my dad, like when I was a little kid, before I really understood how things worked, like, how come we don't live in the city? Like, why don't like walking along Central Park West as a kid? Why don't we have an apartment in that building? Why don't you buy a house here? Yeah, I didn't know, of course, that it was a thousand times more expensive than Queens or, or Long Island. So I didn't understand how it worked then, but yeah. And then even as I grew up, I would say to them, why didn't you get a place in the city like in the 60s when it was cheap? So then it would have been like you would have been cleaned up by the time the 80s rolled around. And it was totally different back then, certainly for me, for my age group anyway. The city was where it was at. And it's funny how you mentioned it's, it's decentralized because I was in the city last year. When was it? Late last year. Oh, no, no, no. I was there in uh, February. I was with Mr. Bungle and we came in. We played a bunch of nights at Brooklyn Steel. I stayed in Brooklyn in Greenpoint for four days. Never even went into Manhattan. I mean, that's like a first for me. 
since like I was a kid. You know what I mean? Like the idea I spent the whole time in Brooklyn, I kind of felt the pull a little bit because I wanted to go to Russ and Daughters to get bagels and locks. And then my buddy goes, they opened one here at Brooklyn Navy Yard. So I didn't have to go into the city to get it. So, yeah, I was like, wow, I was quite content just staying in Greenpoint for four days. What's interesting about what you're saying is that wanting to get out and then the choice of music. Now, what made you decide that music was the best way to do that? Or did you not decide that you said, I have to do music and therefore I have to be successful at music? I mean, it's all I wanted to do. And I was going to do everything that I could to make that happen. Because it truly is the only thing I, I wanted to write Marvel Comics, but I didn't know how to make that happen when I was 15. Like maybe if I would have had the the wherewithal or something to figure out to go to the offices and hang around in Manhattan and like, or something, but I didn't understand any of that. I played guitar and I loved records and I, I, I knew, okay, I have other friends who are musicians. That world made sense to me. I could make this happen. I wanted to be a baseball player, but I was physically, I just figured that's never going to happen either. But music seemed like something as crazy as that dream sounds to people who weren't me when I, I'd be, even my parents, I'd tell my mom, oh, I'm going to make it in a band. Well, what if you don't? Well, I'm going to. Yeah, but then what are you, you going to do if you don't? Well, I'm, I was like, I'm not going to worry about that. If I don't, I'll worry about it then. I could always go back to school because that's what happened when I dropped out of college in my first semester at St. John's. I, I stopped going to school so I could work for my dad and make money. I didn't tell my mom for like six months that I had dropped out until my dad one day at work. She, I would get up every morning as if I was going to school. I'd get on the train, go to the city and work at my dad's office. And my dad one day said, because my parents were divorced. He said, have you told your mother yet that you're not going to school and you know anything about Jewish mothers, specifically Jewish mothers in New York City? I honestly, as you were saying the story, I actually started to feel my heart like constricted. Yeah. I was yeah, thinking about but, if, my, if my dad had ever like done that to my mom, my former dad, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> I'm like, uh, no, I actually, I haven't. I haven't said anything. She still thinks I'm going. And he's like, well, what are you going to do? Like, it's the end of your freshman year is like not that far. Like, you're going to have, you can't keep faking this. You know, I'm like, oh, maybe I could. <laughs> but he's like, no, you need to tell your mother. So I went home from work that day and I, I told my mother and she threw me out. She threw me out of the house. I had to go to the gas station across the street on Bell Boulevard and to the payphone, call my dad out on Long Island and ask if he'd come pick me up. And I, I lived at my dad's for about eight, nine months. But it was never even a question. That's what I was going to do. I wouldn't even worry about any other, anything else until for some reason, if it ever would have happened where there was just an insurmountable object that was in my way that was telling me there's no way you're ever going to make it in the music business, whatever that may have been, then I, I would have dealt with that. But obviously that never happened. I just stayed so focused and so on the path and looking back on it. And I've thought quite a lot about it as well over the years, because obviously when I, I, I wrote my book and stuff years back. And so I had to put myself back in those shoes for a period of months, the tenacity and my ability to, especially once the band started in 81, 
and finding like-minded people and people who were as passionate about it as I was literally like down to things like we'd have to get a rehearsal spot and say it cost $10 an hour and we needed three hours time and you'd expect everybody to chip in five of us. Okay. So it's $2 each an hour. And then you got, Oh, well, I, I don't got five bucks. I can't. And I would end up having to pay. I had a job. So I would end up paying like $20 for, and, and that would be it. I'd be like, you're out, you're fired. Like you're out. You can't find $2 or $6 for three hours to put towards this. Then you don't care about the band, the state, not the way I do. Like get off your ass. I started to feel like I was becoming my mom in that way where I would literally be telling people, get up your ass and get a job so you can pay for rehearsal. Like I'm not your mother. <laughs> so, so maybe my mom being that hard ass on me rubbed off in a lot of positive ways. It's certainly the work ethic thing because she used to get off the couch and go get a job. Like, what are you doing sitting on the couch? I'd be like, I'm sitting here thinking about songwriting. I'm sitting here like thinking about what I'm going to do with my life. And then she'd say, bullshit, go get a job. So I'd go get a job. And then, like I said, quickly, right, money was my ticket to freedom. So what did the balance look like? We're thinking about different days in a life, right? So before you're starting to go on tour or make records, what does a day look like when you're working and then you're writing songs? There was a, a point where you had schoolwork. Like, how did you balance all of that? I mean, I was in a band before Anthrax, but it wasn't like a real band it was neighborhood friends and we played the Bayside high school talent show and didn't win. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it wasn't as serious. That was never going to get to where I wanted to. But for me, it was a way to jam with dudes and play and get better at what I was doing and understand the dynamics of being in a band and all that. The drummer of that band made it into the original lineup of Anthrax, maybe the bass player too, but I, they were quickly you know, as I had to find people who were better. When Anthrax actually started, it was the summer after I graduated high school. It was summer of 81. So in my mind, I was done with school. Even though I did start St. John's that fall, all I did at St. John's was walk around the campus with my, I had a Walkman, just like the beginning of when those first came out. I had a Walkman and I, I literally would walk around listening to Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, and Run DMC. That's all I did. I, I would sit in the class, and I was taking economics and accounting and all these business classes with the idea that someday I was either going to be a lawyer or a doctor. Well, because that's what my mother, as the Jewish mom, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer, a dentist third. <laughs> and I, I didn't do anything. I, I was just like literally looking at the time until noon when I would get out, get on the train and go to the city and work part-time for my dad at the time when I was still actually going to class. So schoolwork was done. I wasn't balancing any schoolwork, although it was taking time out of my day having to physically be at St. John's. But if anything, I was spending that time listening to stuff that I loved and that was giving me ideas and influencing me musically so that when I did get home, and I would go jam with people like at eight o'clock at the rehearsal studio. I would have lots, tons of ideas to just walk in, pick up the guitar and go, what about this? What about this? What about this? So it's basically listening to music all day long and writing things down because there was no way I didn't have a dictation machine or anything. 
So I would kind of write down my riff ideas either with the notes or like phonetically. So I would, I'd be able to sing the riff back to myself and not forget the idea that I had. It wasn't a case of having to balance a whole bunch of other stuff. It was pretty much all I was thinking about was music and everything else was just getting to the time of day when I could then actually physically and mentally be there to make the music happen. Now you're talking about that desire, that drive and that single mindedness. And I hear what you're saying, but there was a lot that you were facing. I mean, it sounds like you're saying your mom was pretty tough. I mean, she kicked you out at some point. I'm sure that there were other people who were kind of saying like, well, you know, what about this? What about this? How did you make that decision when there was potentially all this pressure going in one way? Like you say, be a doctor, be a lawyer, get a different kind of job. And you were like, no, I'm doing this. No questions. I don't know. You could call it just blunt force stupidity. I don't know. I never felt that pressure of what if it doesn't work out? That wasn't a pressure to me because I I always honestly felt that if I can't do this, if I just can't do it, if it doesn't happen for me, it's, that's not the end of my life. I'll pick up the ball and start running in a different direction at that point. I had my dad who, especially once I moved out of my mom's and I was living at my dad's, so we would take Long Island Railroad into the city every day from Merrick. I was with my dad from six in the morning until whatever, seven at night, eight at night when we'd get back to Long Island. Then I would drive back to Queens to go rehearse with the guys, then drive back to Long Island to go to bed, get up in the morning, take the train. My dad was always just very much, look, you're not sitting on your ass doing nothing. I was working full time for my dad at his office. He said, you could always go into the jewelry business full time too. You could, you could go to GIA, the Gemological Institute. I wasn't into that. It's, I, wasn't, I didn't care about that, but I knew I had a job. I was making money. I wasn't sitting around being lazy. I was the opposite of lazy. I was working full time and I was trying to be in a band full time. At the, I was making both of them work at the time. And I think that's why I never felt that pressure of who do you think you are that you're going to make it in the music business? Why you? A million other people think they're going to make it. And I'm sure almost anyone in the entertainment industry, whether it's music or acting or whatever it is, anything in the arts, everyone's probably had that same conversation at some point. Who do you think you are that anyone's going to want to buy one of your paintings or who do you, anything like that. You just, you can't care. I think if, if I ever would have doubted for one second, oh, maybe, maybe they're right. If I ever would have doubted for one second, it wouldn't have happened for me. But I never, ever, ever felt that pressure because I didn't see it as a problem. So what if, if I leave school for a couple of years and then I go back and I get a degree five years from now? So then I, that's when that happens. I wasn't worried. I just, I think I always had a, a self-confidence that because school always came easy to me and I was very confident as a human and a hard worker that somehow, some way, I'm going to get a job and whatever it is, I'm going to be happy with whatever that would be if it doesn't happen. But I never really thought about that. I just would tell my mom, I'll go back to school five years from now. What's the difference? 18 or 23, who who cares? So what if I don't follow the program the way things have always been done? 
it doesn't matter. I'm not going to waste my life. I, I used to say that to her. I'm not going to waste my life. I promise you. I ended up moving back into my mom's like eight, nine months after she kicked me out because it, it was such a pain in the ass, like dealing with Long Island and all that. But we made up and everything was fine. But yeah, I just, I honestly, I, I hate saying that word honestly because I know people say as soon as someone says honestly, that it means they're lying. I never had any doubt that this is what I was going to do with my life. And like I, to, to start, go back to the first thing I said, maybe I was just, it was just blind stupidity towards it, but I never felt like I couldn't do it. The more people told me I couldn't do it, the more I was like, yeah, we'll see. And it's interesting because I think people who are our generation remember, but a lot of people right now, the idea of taking a few years or a gap year or anything like right. that is right. people do that. But unless you grew up in our generation, I don't think people would realize how unorthodox it would be to say what you just said. The oh, idea I, of I'm going to go yeah, back. I <laughs> I, yeah, I know. Like we grew up where, where there were movies, I mean, like risky business, the entire premise is that it was, it was a horror if he went to University of Illinois instead of Princeton. I mean, you wouldn't need, that's not even a world that, that I don't think people would even understand now. But what you are talking about is with confidence, which I, I think is, is fantastic, but just as for people who aren't of that generation, like back then, that you just did not do that. You didn't even say those. You don't say those words to a Jewish mother. Are you kidding? You'd never no, say I, something like that. I made a joke. I think I wrote it in my book that when I told my mother I had dropped out of school, I feel like I remember her dropping a glass that she was holding. I may have added that in at some point, but the scream that she, like the scream that came out of her is if this is the reason why we haven't been invaded by aliens, because that scream is traveling through space, like the speed of sound and alien races hear this thing going, what the hell is that? We, we're going to stay far away from whatever that is. Because she, I mean, it was like so... I heard her so deeply when I told her I had dropped out of college. No alien wants to deal with a Jewish mother who's had their son tell them that they're going to drop out of college. They just don't want to deal. They'll go to another planet, I think. You know, when when I first started, look, I knew in high school, I I knew certainly probably by my junior year for sure, because I had already met my friend Danny, who we co-founded Anthrax. I knew what I was going to do, and I really had no intention I didn't want to go to college, but I had to go to college. And I was like, all right, if I have to go to college, I was kind of like, I played with the idea for five seconds of like, well, I want to go to UCLA because I I had been to California in 1977. The summer of 77, I spent the money I made for my bar mitzvah and flew my brother and I out. And we stayed with my mom's best friend who lived in Laguna Beach for the whole summer. And it was like the summer of golden summer of my life. So L.A. held this very special place in my, my brain and, and my heart. I was like, maybe I'll go to UCLA. But then I was like, no, if I do that, I'm never going to be able to. I got a thing going here right now with other dudes and musicians. And I've got my little network happening. I can't leave the city. So I was like, all right, I'll go to NYU. What could be better than living in a dorm in the village? That would be like the coolest thing in the world would be to be able to do that. So I applied to NYU and I had the grades to get in. But if I remember correctly, because I I was a New York City resident, I couldn't live in a dorm. I don't know if that's changed over the years, but I think in like 1980, when I was applying to schools, I wasn't eligible to live like on campus because I lived in Queens. 
And I was like, well, screw that. I'm not taking the train into the city every day to go to school. NYU would have been great to live in. I mean, I don't know that I ever would have gotten anything done living in, <laughs> living in Greenwich Village. And then funny enough, years later, that's when I first met Rick Rubin because he was living, he went to NYU and through mutual friends I had, we used to like go up to his dorm room and listen to records. And anyway, I knew I had no intention of going to college. And even though I would say that to my mom and I got a student loan that I was paying off for years, I had that on my back, which was a complete waste of my money, but I had to pay off this freaking student loan for like four years or something that took me to pay that off. It was frustrating, but that's what was you were expected to do. My life at that point in time, it was very much, I had a girlfriend who was, a, she was, became my first wife. It was like, graduate high school, go to college. I had a girlfriend. We ended up getting engaged. We got married in 1987, divorced in 89. Like the whole thing was planned out by our parents. We would both graduate college. We would both get jobs. Right after that, we would have a kid. By 87, the band was happening. We had our third record out, and I was like, I'm out. Like, I, I, no, I, no kids, I, I'm out. You know, and that's why I, that had to end. Your life was very much planned still, as crazy as that sounds, from our generation. That's how it worked, especially as a, I, I know it was different for other races, but as a Jewish kid, my mom had her idea of what was going to happen with my life. At time, and I, I very much had a different idea of what was going to happen with my life. Now, one of the things you're talking about is NYU, late '70s, early '80s. At that point, I don't think hip hop had spread. I don't know that punk had spread quite so much. So New York was very unique in terms of the hip hop and the punk and the metal. And so I'm just kind of curious, from your perspective, how. Did that all influence you or as a metal, I don't know if you, you identified as like a metal guy during that time, but how did all of those subcultures interact back then in New York? It was just the most fertile ground. The, I mean, seemingly because I was there, you know, I started going, I started hanging out in the village and downtown as a kid, not at night, obviously, because I was too young, but you know, we started taking the train in, me and my friends like in 78. So when I was 14 going on 15 and we'd hang out on the weekends at record stores and stuff like that and just hang out in the city all day. There was so much going on musically. And like you said, so many different scenes. There was the, the new wave scene, the punk scene, the rap scene, the hard rock. It wasn't even called metal yet, but I identified as a rock guy. I had the long hair, the leather jacket. Uh, I was also a huge Ramones fan I was definitely a rock guy. By the time the early 80s rolled around, certainly by after, after 1980, which was kind of like the, the year that metal really kind of, because this thing, the new wave of British heavy metal, exported out of the UK and became a worldwide thing with bands like Maiden and Priest and Motorhead and started to really break down that door all over the world. And those bands became arena acts. And so by 81, hanging out in, in the city, yeah, it was... There was a lot of interaction, surprisingly. I mean, not on a mainstream level yet, because if you go to a punk show, let's say you go to a hardcore matinee or a punk show at CBGB's, I would certainly be the anomaly as the kid with long hair. It took me years to even get the balls to go to a, a one of those Sunday matinees at CBGB's because I always heard that, well, the skinheads will kick your ass if you have long hair and all that. But 
my first punk show was at Gildersleeves in 82. I saw the exploited and I wanted to go down in the, I didn't know what it was called yet, but people were slam dancing on the floor. And my buddy said to me, you, know, you can't go in there. The punks don't like the long hairs. And, and it was true. It wasn't, but then you start meeting people on an individual level and people are just people. Some are assholes and some aren't, you know what I mean? Whether it doesn't matter, you have long hair or a mohawk or a shaved head or you're in the hip hop or whatever it may be, you just find your people. And that's what happened with me. I started finding my people in across all of these different scenes. And we all had similar likes and dislikes when it came to all this type of music, because I loved all of the stuff that was going on in New York City at the time. I loved all of these scenes. I loved so many of the from from the Ramones and, and Blondie to Kiss and even this band Manowar from upstate New York. Anyway, I won't get into that. I mean, there was just so many different scenes. And then, of course, even the early, early rap music of Sugar Hill Gang and things like that. You'd literally play those records because at house parties, you'd want girls to dance. But certainly when Run DMC came around, you know, I started listening to that. It was a whole different thing. It spoke to me the same way metal did. And all of these different types of music all moved me in the same way. I just found my people amongst all of these different subgroups, subcultures. <laughs> One of the things that when people talk about that kind of drive, it can come from two places. It can come from a motivation from the ground up. Like there's just, there's just something in you that needs to do this. And it's, it's there every day. It's, it just pushes you. And then there's more of a, like from the top down, kind of like a determination or purpose oriented that says, I sort of intellectually know I want to do this. And even if I'm not feeling it, I'm going to push myself to do it. Do you have a sense from that perspective, like which way did you tend to operate? Was it a combination? I've never really analyzed it. We're getting to the heavy stuff. If Scott Ian of Anthrax comes onto our podcast, we got to get into the serious stuff. Give that to me again. Let me see if I can connect with. All right. So let's take two different, two different potential scenarios. There's someone who every morning gets up and they're just bleeding their music. It's like Cyclops with the stuff coming out of his eyes before he had those cool glasses. You know, it's like, it's just coming out of you. So I got to channel that somehow. And right. every day I wake up, I feel that buzzing within me that just is like metal, 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 guitar, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's one way that people can drive to success. There's another way where it says at some point, yeah, I have that, but it's more like David Goggins often says, determination trumps motivation. It's a situation where I just know intellectually that that's what I want to do. So I don't care how I'm feeling when I wake up, I'm just going to go do it. And right. I don't know, it, like, so those are two styles that, that people have. Usually they go together in some way. Yeah. But I guess the question is for you, do you have any sense of how that plays out for you? I was definitely determined. The analogy of Cyclops with the red beam coming out of his eyes, that kind of hits home as well. Because from the time I woke up in the morning, I couldn't wait to put a guitar on and turn an amp on and literally the idea of hitting that first chord loud through an amp after working all day or whatever else was uh, I was doing was such a release. And it literally felt like that. It was definitely a combination of both because I did spend most of my day not physically making music. I was a messenger. 
So I spend most of my day out and about in Manhattan making deliveries and pickups, jewelry business, little envelopes. So it's not like I was like lugging shit around, but I spent most of my day between 30th Street and 47th Street, where my dad's office was on 30th and the jewelry district's on 47th between 5th and 6th. I spent most of my day out and about doing that. So I was in my head thinking about stuff all day long. And then I would also spend at least an hour to two hours on 48th Street at the time between 6th and 7th, which was where all the guitar shops were. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, it wouldn't be like at 8 o'clock at night when I would first have that chance to play because like at, at noon when I would go to the block and spend my lunch hour on the block in the guitar stores, like at Sam Ash or something, I would go in there and sit and play during, I just, I forgot about that. I used to have my messenger job down so well that I, I would get stuff done so much quicker than obviously they thought. And that would give me like, all right, I got 90 minutes. I could hang on the block today. I was very good at managing my time. It was definitely a combination of both. There wasn't a time where I wasn't thinking about it. It was, it was constantly what I was going to do every day to somehow make my band, which in 1981, even into 82, nobody had even heard of outside of me and some friends. But how are we going to move forward? What's one thing that's going to happen today? Maybe it's a piece of gear that I needed for a certain thing, or maybe we were able to finish a song that we were working on or whatever it was, or somebody heard about some club that maybe they would let a band that has its own songs play or, but I always just felt like every day and needed to make something happen. So I always felt forward motion. I was really good at doing that. It's hard for me to even imagine now because my life is in some ways the same, but mostly different than it was from when I was 17. And yeah, it's hard for me to imagine that even anymore. That was it. I had, I had nothing else. This was it. Like I said earlier, this is what I was going to do. Everything I did. So I, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not. No, 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 totally. Every, everything I did was for the band. Everything. I was working because I needed to make money to buy gear or pay for demos or whatever it was. Every dime I made went into Anthrax in some way, shape or form until I started making money from Anthrax. And then I was able to get my own apartment. Everything I did, every moment, every waking moment, and probably every sleeping moment even was, I was just so laser beam focused on what I wanted. Now, during that time, did you ever have not a crisis of confidence, but a crisis of motivation where you just notice like, ah, it's just, I don't got it for some reason, like for not, not like a day, but for like any kind of period of time where no. whether it never happened. <laughs> no, no, it never happened because it was, it was, it was constant forward motion. Granted, it was forward motion up a really steep hill for a solid two years until the door opened, we forced the door open for ourselves where that's when we had met the guy that would eventually become our manager, John Zazula. And also he started a record label because he couldn't get anyone interested. He also basically was the guy that discovered Metallica and brought Metallica to New York to make their first album. So when he told us I'm starting a record label, that was like, we were already friends and he was into our band and 
He's like, I want you guys to be a part of it. It's going to be you guys and Metallica, this other band Raven from Newcastle, England. That was two years into from the start, the day the band started until like we had this glimmer of this might actually happen. This guy has the wherewithal and he's going to put his money where his mouth is, put us in a studio and make, make records. And he actually did it. And in the fall of 83, we were up in Ithaca, New York, recording Fistful of Metal, our first album. So, and of course, that doesn't mean we made it. But in my mind at the time, certainly that was the biggest, the biggest step. And even today, when people ask me, what was the hardest thing you ever had to do being in a band? Or what was the most difficult time period or this or that? It's like making our first album, getting to make our first album, because we never really knew if that was going to happen. It's not like now where you could record an album in GarageBand. You had to go to a studio and you needed someone to be able to make vinyl and CDs. And it wasn't something I could just do. Probably given another year, I could have figured it out. The idea that someone was starting a label and was going to finance this and make it happen and figured out distribution and all of that stuff that was the biggest step because that opened the door for us enough to get our foot in there with our first record. And that was our launch pad right there. We were able to show the world that we had something to say and enough people cared and connected that a year later we were signed to Island Records. We had our major label deal, of course, was the dream and the rest is history. So yeah, getting to that point, those two years of just constantly moving forward and without ever, there was never, every time Johnny Z, John Zazula would say to us, we would bring him a new demo. We'd go down to Jersey and meet him at his record store. We'd bring him a new demo and he, he would criticize it and he'd be brutally honest uh, about stuff because we very much had a very same taste in music. And he would tell us specific things about how the drummer was playing or this or that. And I would try to not get angry about it and take it personally because this was the guy who had shit going on. And we would listen to him and be like, you know, yeah, maybe Johnny's right about this. And we would talk. And he was because our drummer at the time, he wasn't the guy we needed. And then he ended up quitting anyway. And then we found Charlie. And we never would have done anything if we didn't get Charlie. So it was basically Johnny Z saying, this guy's not cutting it, man. Maybe you guys can't hear it. You're too close to it, but you need a better drummer. And then we found Charlie. So it was like, it was great. We had that guy who was able to just be brutally honest and constructively criticize what we were doing as a band. Cause of course we thought our shit didn't stink. So like, no, we're great. And it's, he's like, no, you're good, but you can be better. And he was right. And having him involved once we met in like the fall of 82 over that next year or so until he started Megaforce and all that, he was such an integral part of everything we were doing and kept us moving forward because we always had that, that glimmer of hope that Johnny's going to, he's going to make an album with us. <laughs> okay. So here we are and you put in all that time, you put in all that effort, that single-minded focus. It's definitely going to work. Okay. And now here you are, however many years later, with other things in your life, you know, you're a family man as well. And so the question I have is how do you take that single-minded failure is not an option mentality 
and apply it to music while you're a family guy? And also, do, do you apply that same mentality to your family life? I do. I think it's pretty easy to pinpoint really the moment everything changed was when our son was born. Because before that, Pearl and I had been together 11 years before Revel was born. It was no kids, no pets. We came and went as we pleased. If I was on tour, Pearl could come out or she was on tour, whatever. It was easy to come and go and pick up and go, let's go to Paris. Let's do this. Let's do that. Like I said, no kids, no pets. And when Revel was born, everything changed. And and not just like, oh, well, now we have a child. We can't, it was, it changed for the right reasons because I was always the guy, I mean, like my brother had his daughter and my niece a couple of years before we had a child. And a lot of my friends have had kids. And I was always the guy like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great for you. And until you have your own child and then, cause you can't understand until you have a child and what, how just it changes everything, your capacity for, for love and, and hope and everything. It's like something opens inside and you're like, that's it. Everything's different. And that's literally what it was. So for me, yeah, being able to balance essentially my way of making a living, my job. And it's not like I, I, I don't tend to like looking at my band as my job, but yes, that is what, that is my job. I love making music and I love being in a band, but it also is what pays the bills, right? So you have to figure out a way to balance that and not be away from weeks, months at a time. And two of the other guys in the band had already had children before I did. So it was a scenario for me that we were, maybe it was certainly easier than if we all would have done this, if we all would have had kids in the eighties, when we would just be gone for months, touring, just the whole touring animal was different even back then. Three of us have children and we all feel very much the same way about not being apart from our family for longer than we need to. So you have to try and find the balance. And sometimes financially, that's not the best way to operate as a business, but mentally it's the best way to operate because I would rather be with my family, whether it's home or somewhere else on the planet, but there's no one else I want to be with more than my wife and my son. I was going to make a joke at the top of this answer and saying, well, you wait for a pandemic to come and then you just get to be home. But (laughs) I want to go back to work as much as anyone else. But I've obviously had quite a lot of time. I've had four months, literally March 13th was the day we started quarantining. I had a lot of time to, to think about this. And we never would have elect, electively as a band said, let's take two years off. It's not something we, we would ever have done. Financially, it's not something we could afford to do even. But even just on every level, it's not something that conversation with let's, let's take a hiatus. That's not going to happen. We've been forced into that situation. So if, if there's one silver lining about this for me is I get to be home with my family for longer than I've ever been. That's awesome. So figuring out ways to, to work with uh, everything going on uh, on the planet and being able to stay creative and stay busy and work and make things work financially. It was kind of like starting over in a weird way four months ago, like, all right, 
what I do is not essential, which that was not hard to come to grips with. I understand. I get to be home with my family. And so now how do I about like, now I get to do this full time and then how are we going to make it work with the band? So financially we could keep our heads above water as well, because who knows how long this is going to be. We're going to be the last ones to go back to work. So figure it out. And there's a part of me now that's in those same shoes I was in when I was 17 years old, because it's trying to figure out how are we going to do this? Luckily for us this year was kind of an off year from touring anyway, because we're writing a record and the plan was to have it out at the end of this year. That's all changed. We're hoping next summer, but it's still a crapshoot. Nobody knows. Everyone's saying everything's going to happen again at 21. Maybe. So in my mind, I'm not going back to work probably till I'm thinking 22. Realistically, that's when things will maybe start to get somewhere back to normal for my world as a touring musician. So now it's become a case of how do I keep things running for the next two years with the luxury of being home? Because if it was up to me, I would just hang around and, and jam with my son all day long. But now I have to be able to have the balance of I get to just be home and I get to go to the beach and hang out and it becomes very easy to do nothing. And when I say nothing, I don't mean nothing in a lazy way. I mean, not have anything to do with my band and literally be on vacation from, from my work. So it's almost like a retraining of like, I get to hang, like even doing interviews, I kind of like at one point I said, I'm not doing anything you know what, I have a chance now to, to literally take a break. And I did. We kind of did. And then we started doing these Insta Jam collaboration things online and whatnot, and slowly but surely getting our feet back in the game. And I'm sure that'll pick up over the months. But I'll tell you what, I, <laughs> I love being home. I love not traveling. I love not getting on a plane. I was looking at our schedule because it was all on my calendar. I was supposed to be in Europe for the last two weeks playing festivals I was like, oh my God, I'm so glad I'm not in the Ukraine right now. Just like imagining that there was no pandemic. Just like, I'm so glad I'm, I'm like literally like I'm home right now and I'm sitting in my living room hanging out. Just the idea of that, it's never happened. We've never canceled shows. It was out of my hands and it was nice to have no power for the kind of the first time. It's all out of my hands. It's like, hey, there's nothing I could do just going to hang out here with my family. <laughs> you tell me when it's okay to come back to work. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right. Well, listen, Scott, it's so great to talk to you again. And please give my best to Pearl. I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys do next. And I hope whatever it is that you're doing, I hope you'll come back on because it's always good to talk to you. Yeah, we could a year from now, hopefully things will be somewhat coming back to normal and be able to say like, well, so how did you make it work? I <laughs> bet <laughs> I would love that. So there you have it, Scott Ian of Anthrax talking about being a kid from Queens, dreaming of a career in heavy metal, and all the determination and work it took to make it happen. And remember, he put in all that effort before he knew it would work out. That's one of the toughest parts about resisting societal pressures and following our purpose. We don't know if it's going to work out. But at Hardcore Humanism, we believe that we are better for trying, for taking that path that feels most authentic and most real to us. 
And we want to talk to as many people as we can, like Scott, who dare to dream big and put in the effort to make it happen so that we can get inspired and learn lessons that we can apply in our own life as we pursue our purpose. So get at it, hardcore humans. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app, and we'd be grateful for a rating and a review. And if you want to take the next step in living out your purpose, you can learn more about the Hardcore Humanism coaching and therapy program on hardcorehumanism.com. See you next time.